Today we're going to talk about forgiveness, and as we um, discuss it, we're going we're to talk about it from the perspective of an individual that has reason to forgive. We're going to talk about the reality of, of having needs around us that require us to extend and offer forgiveness to other people. We'll talk about that as a normal part of relationships. Some of you may have read this story online or you'd seen it, but back in 1986, there was a man by the name of Stephen McDonald. He, is a, he was a New York Police Department officer, and he was serving in uh, Central Park. And um, he made national news because of the fact that he, on a routine call, was uh, checking on some petty theft that had happened in or near the park. And they came upon a group of young men. And as he came close to this one, they ran and they, they caught up with these guys. And he noticed something that looked like a, a gun in someone's sock. And uh, so he reaches down to, to frisk this young man. And another man, 15 years old, young man, just 15 years old, would pull a gun and shoot him in the head, in the back, and um, ultimately, um, they thought he was going to die. Um, in fact, there's there's these incredible pictures of him in the moments right afterwards where uh, they uh, called up his wife. He had only been married for um, just about eight months, and his wife was pregnant with her first child, three years old, or three months. He was, uh, she'd been pregnant for three months, and so um, she gets this terrible phone call. His um, a fellow officer just held him as he was bleeding after this horrific uh, act of violence had happened. And, uh, and, and what would happen would be that his life would be spared, um, but he would be told in the days after that that he would have to eat all of the rest of his meals in his life through a feeding tube. He would have to be on a breathing machine. The, the, the bottom half of his body would pe- be paralyzed for the rest of his life. And as he told the story, um, there have been many accounts of it, and he, he has since passed away, but for the next 31 years, he would have to deal with the reality of the consequences of the decision that was made on that day. And, and if you can put yourself in his shoes, I'm guessing that for many of us, if we can think about that, or in the, the shoes of his wife, that uh, there would be an incredible amount of emotions and anger and bitterness and discouragement. I'm sure uh, the way he described it, especially in those first six months, that that every moment of every day he thought about how angry he was about this this act that was done to him by a 15-year-old boy. And then his son was born. And he tells the story, and in this story, as he describes his son being born, he actually tells the story of how he accepted Christ as his Savior and how God taught him something that I think he can teach each and every one of us, and that is how to forgive. So, so he learned how to forgive through the gospel and the work that God did in his life. He said, he said this, to me, Connor, that was the name of his son that was born, Connor's birth was like a message from God that I should live and live differently. It was clear to me that I had to respond to that message. I prayed that I would be changed, that the person I was would be replaced by something new. It's a great description of of receiving the gospel. He accepted God's forgiveness for him, and then from there he was set free in another way. He said, that prayer was answered with a desire to forgive the young man who shot me. I wanted to free myself of all of the negative, destructive emotions that his act of violence had unleashed on me. Anger, bitterness, hatred, and other feelings. I needed to free myself of those emotions so I could love my wife and our new child and those who are around me. 
His wife went through a similar journey and she articulated her own um, understanding of forgiveness. She says, I forgave him because I believe the only thing worse than receiving a bullet in my spine, like he did, would be to nurture revenge in my heart. Such an attitude would have extended my injury to my soul. It's bad enough that the physical effects were permanent, but at least I can choose to prevent spiritual injury in our life. I had to let go of my anger. Otherwise, Stephen and I would not have been able to go on ourselves because when something like that festers inside of you, it just destroys you from the inside out. We've talked about unforgiveness before, and we've talked about how difficult it is. That unforgiveness has been described like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. We've, we've understood that there are experiences that we have in life that cause us to have resentment towards someone else, to be discouraged, to be frustrated. In this situation, the man who'd caused this pain or the young man had caused this pain in his life was a, a, a very specific person that came to mind. You know what's great about this particular story is Officer Stephen McDonald would reach out to this young man while he was in jail, and they would call that. Later, they would strike up what would become a friendship, and they interacted with each other. He said that he completely, um, it came unexpectedly, a late-night phone call at their home where this young man in tears called and apologized for what had happened uh, to this man's life. He was devastated. He was heartbroken over what he'd done. And you listen to this story, and you learn a hint about the key to forgiveness. God's word's really clear. I'm excited for you today, especially those of you who've come in with a sense of unforgiveness, that God doesn't just tell us to forgive others, but today I celebrate the fact that he teaches us how to do it. And, and as we study God's word together, we're going to see the key to forgiveness. And, and the, the key that we're going to see time and time again as it's described in scripture is to remember your own need for forgiveness. The title this morning is The Forgiven Forgive. There's not an option that's related to that, but there's an understanding. This is what it means to be a person who's been forgiven. I love this in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32. This is, this is worth memorizing. This is worth printing off and posting on your mirror at home or on your car dashboard because it's so valuable. Listen to these words. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And I say, amen. Last week, we talked about being a peacemaker, and I think this is what it looks like. Um, you know, we, we talk about this, like the idea of bearing the hatchet. Have you ever heard that phrase before? It's time for us to bear that, bury the hatchet. Well, uh, they say that Native American tribes, that that was a tradition within Native American tribes, that you literally would take a hatchet, and at a time of tribes unifying or deciding they're going to stop fighting amongst each other, um, they would literally take a hatchet and they'd bury it under the ground. Uh, but maybe some of you are familiar with the, the great theologian Garth Brooks, uh, who, who likes to say that we took the hatchet and we buried it with the handle sticking out, right? 
I think for many of us, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we hold on to areas of unforgiveness in our life. We, we want to keep them so that we can bring them up at another time. We, we, we recognize the hurt that we've experienced, and we all know that we can forgive, yes, but it's hard to forget, and we remember what it feels like to keep record of wrongs, right? That we store those things up for another moment in history. Garth Brooks in that song has a couple of interesting lyrics. He says, we're always digging up things we should forget about. We bury the hatchet, but we leave the handles sticking out. We've got enough on each other to wage a full-scale war. And honestly, as I look around the relationships that are around me, even some that have touched the closest level of family around my life, I've seen families that look like they're undergoing full-scale war. There's a level of bitterness and discouragement that has led that, that handle um, to be brought out and to continue to hurt one another. It's interesting. There's an illustration of this just right here close by. Um, at the church right now, there is um, some kind of a bird um, that is, there's a reflection over here that it sees itself in the mirror, but it doesn't recognize that it's seeing itself in the mirror. He thinks that it's a competitor, maybe so he can get a date, you know? And so what he's doing right now, you'll see, we've tried to put boards up to protect him. We're trying to help him to not hurt himself. But what he's doing is he's literally pecking that glass to the point where we called the local um, animal control things. They say he'll probably kill himself. It's probably what's going to happen. Because he thinks that he's doing harm to someone else, something else. But instead, he himself is the one that ex is experiencing the pain. I think that for many of us, when we fail to forgive, we are the ones that lose. We are the ones that watch the relationships around us crumble. I appreciate what Isabel Holland said when she said, as long as you don't forgive, who and whatever it is will occupy a rent-free space in your mind. You understand what she's saying there? She's saying, we give people power in our life, those people who some of them don't even know that we've been wounded by them. We give them a deep power that has the potential of causing great harm. And today I want to celebrate with you, if you stick with me through this sermon, that we do not have to stay in that state. We can actually be people who, yes, it is impossible to forget the wrongs that others have done to us. And we'll talk about it biblically today in a way that I think is helpful, that it's going to describe not just low-grade offenses, but times when people literally sin against us, when they cause great harm to us. That, that we have the ability in our life to be able to respond to that well, accurately, and to understand what it means to forgive well. I love the story of Clara Burton. You, some of you may know that name. She was the founder of the American Red Cross. And she was once reminded by a close friend of an especially cruel thing that someone had done to her years before. But Miss Bartons seemed not to recall it. And she said, when her friend said, don't you remember it? And when her friend asked her that, she said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. Isn't that great? I distinctly remember forgetting that wrong that someone had done to me. Some, some of us collect beanie babies. Some of us collect action figures, playing cards. And some people collect grudges, don't they? And they store them up for a moment in history when they can unleash their pain, but not recognize the fact that they themselves are bringing great pain in their life. I think Clara Burton, when she described that truth, she's telling us something 
that God's word is going to teach us profoundly about forgiveness. The first point this morning that's going to flow out of God's word, uh, we're going to look at Matthew 18 at these verses a little closer, is that forgiveness is an essential ingredient to all relationships. That's every relationship. Forgiveness is an essential ingredient to all relationships. Whether you give it or whether you receive it, it is a part of every relationship. I love this encounter that's recorded in Matthew 18, verse 21 and 22 of Peter, his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he comes to to Jesus and he says to him, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive someone who sins against me? I think it's important for us to note that this isn't trite things or things that are small. This is big stuff. So, so Peter, I think, though, when he says this to Jesus, I think he's, he's saying, like, I, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, right? Seven times, that's a lot. Like, we have our own standards, right? We use the phrase, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Or we talk about the reality of one, two, three strikes, and you're out when it comes to relationships, right? Uh, we have our own standards. In the Jewish culture that this was spoken into, seven times would have been considered a lavish form of forgiveness. And so, so here, um, Peter is asking Jesus this question. So how many times do I really need to forgive someone? And it says this in the text in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That, that multiplication, some of you have read this as 70 times seven. The point that Jesus is making is that it is a, you do not keep record of number. It is a number that's so, so much greater than our standards. And I think that it's important that we have to recognize that at times we give forgiveness, at times we receive it. And so our standards, our Peter's standards, they um, are different when we compare them to God's standards. I love the story. You guys remember J. Vernon McGee, the old radio um, uh, evangelist who, who he used to tell this story. I thought this was great about a, an, an Irish boxer who accepted Christ and who became a traveling evangelist in the 1800s. And um, he, he told the story that this man was out putting up a tent for a tent revival, and there were some, some guys in the community that, that wanted to cause a bit of a conflict, and so one of them came up to him and was, was kind of harsh with him and picking on him, and um, one of them actually hauled off and, and smacked him in the, in the face. And, and the man just stoic, just stood there and received it. And then another guy um, hauled off because he hadn't responded and held off and, and smacked him on the other cheek. And you guys remember the biblical teaching that you turn the other cheek. Uh, and his response back was, the Lord has no further instructions for me. And then he rolled up his sleeve and he, uh, yeah, I love, I love that story. Right? So I had a neighbor one time who was sincere. He was a guy who attended church with us. And he's like, Sean, I'm so frustrated with our neighbor that I have run out of cheeks to turn, right? I think um, Jesus's standard here that he says to Peter is one that would have been kind of shocking. It would have been a recognition of something that was pretty significant. Jesus is going to then use an illustration to teach Peter about lavish forgiveness. Look with me in verse 23. It says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, as he tells this story, the king is going to be the Lord Jesus or God in the triune way. So he's describing God's forgiveness to his people, but he's going to use a powerful illustration here. He said, when he began to settle his accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Uh, if I were doing the punctuation on this, I would have put three exclamation points after he said this. The, the 10,000 talents, a talent was a measure of weight, uh, and it would have been about 75 pounds. And then the 10,000 is actually a measurement in Greek that is their highest numeral. And it described a myriad or a myria, um, and it literally would have been like gazillions, right? Did you guys ever say that when you were a kid, when you didn't have a number that was big enough? It was like millions and gazillions. And so as he describes this precious material, uh, 75 pounds times at least a thousand, that he's talking about something that's massive. And in fact, when Peter would have heard the amount of debt that was owed, he would have been shocked because it would have been an overwhelming number. And then it says, and since he could not pay, which would have been a big duh, like it's impossible. He could not have paid this off. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in the payment to be made. Um, this is not a defense of slavery. This was a cultural thing that happened in history. And it's important for us to understand Jesus was using this as an illustration of the debt that you and I owe as those who've asked the Lord for forgiveness in our life, that we owe him an immeasurable amount. It's so great. It's so unmeasurable that his forgiveness is incredible. It goes on to say this. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. But we already know it's an irrepayable debt. But then he goes on to say in verse 27, and out of pity, mercy, grace for him, the master that servant released, the master of that servant released him and he forgave him the debt. This, this would have been an incredible moment as he tells the story. He did what? He forgave him how much some of you know the story of Les Mis. I remember the first time being in a playhouse and watching that story and the thief, Jean Valjean, as he has taken the, the silverware from the good priest, then he comes back after he's caught and the priest says the statement, you forgot to take the candlesticks. And I remember sitting in the playhouse going, he, what? I gasped. Because it doesn't make any sense. It would have been shocking as this story is told. It's an act of incredible grace and generosity. But unfortunately, the second plot twist that we see in the text is completely cringeworthy. You read this in verse 28. But when that same servant, the one who'd been forgiven so much, found one of his, went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. Now, his fellow, fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Now, we read this in the text, and it's important for us to, to do the math on this one, is that this 100 denarii, this denarii would have been an, a common laborer's day's wages or a soldier's day wages. So whatever you make in a day, if you have a full-time job, I want you to consider that number, and I want you to multiply that by 100. This was not a small debt that was owed. 
This was a substantial amount of money that was owed. And then I think the thing that makes us cringe is we see this man who'd been forgiven so much go to someone else and say, I'm going to hold you accountable for what you've done to me. And, and those who are watching, which by the way, other people are watching how we treat one another, how we extend forgiveness to one another. Others are watching it and they're, they're, they're in awe and shock and awe as to how sad this is. So his fellow servant went down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you back. But he refuses. He went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They were heartbroken. They were in awe of this. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. So they go back to the king. And they say, this man that you had forgiven so much, now he had found someone who owed him a small amount, a significant amount, and he ended up holding him accountable to it. You know, brothers and sisters, the, um, the, the reality of this is that we do this all the time in our life. We forget how much God has forgiven us. And we choose to hold other people accountable to standard. We lower the standard and expectation that we hold ourselves to, to what we hold to other people. In verse 32, it says, Then his master summoned him, and he said to him, You wicked servant, he condemns him. I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. You asked me for it. And should not you have had mercy and delivered him to the jailers until... So then he says, you should have had it. He delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. I, I look at this portion of the story, and I recognize that we are people who forgive, and we are people who are forgiven. And I think it's important for us to understand in the context of the story that the Christian way of forgiveness is unique. You and I live in a we repay evil for evil type of society. Uh, I love the way that Marlene Dietrich puts it. She describes this pretty well when she says, once a woman has forgiven her man, she must not reheat his sins for breakfast. Isn't that funny? Uh, she said, like, we, when we've forgiven someone, we don't hold on to it. I love the words of Archibald Hart when he says, forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. Uh, Peter Marshall puts it this way, Lord, when we are wrong, make us willing to change and when we are right, make us easy to live with. Isn't that great? Te teach me to forgive like I have been forgiven. That was the Lord's prayer. He says, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of those who've trespassed against us. I think it's important for us to recognize that God expects us to be people. He doesn't just ask us. He expects us to be people who forgive other people. And somewhere along the line, I think in our Christian faith, we have decided that forgiveness is somewhat optional. And I, I found this to be very helpful. General Oglethorpe once asked the, um, the, the pastor John Wesley this statement. He said, or he made this statement, I never forgive and I never forget. He's quite proud of it. But to which Wesley responded, then, sir, I hope that you never sin. <laughs> His point is we are people who need to be forgiven. So we ought to be people who extend forgiveness to others. Second point this morning that flows out of God's word in Ephesians 4.31 is forgiveness is a deliberate choice. It's not a natural reaction. I, I want to be clear. I don't think this is a natural response to forgive other people. I think Peter, when he comes up with his number of seven, seven times, do I forgive someone? He's saying something that is 
is understandable. How many times do I really have to forgive someone? Isn't it ironic that Peter, the very man who asked that question to the Lord Jesus Christ, would have been a man who at times let Jesus down, denied Christ, was cutting people's ears off when he shouldn't. You know, all these things that Peter did. And yet, he was, so he was a man who needed forgiveness, um, but he recognized that it was hard to extend and give forgiveness. Forgiveness is a deliberate choice. We're going to see this in Ephesians 4. Not necessarily a natural reaction. Let's look back at this verse that I've already said is a key to us understanding forgiveness. In Ephesians 4.31, it says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I love that little statement. And he said, put it away from you. This has no place for you as a Christ follower. These are things that are not supposed to be a part of your life. Bitterness uh, I want you to think of the word bitterness, like uh, have you ever had the bitter chocolate when it isn't, doesn't have all the stuff that makes it taste good? It, it, it reminds you of something that could be awesome, but it, it, it is not quite the complete thing, right? And, and I, I love that description. And when it's something that's good, that is less than it could be, something that's been tainted, it harbors resentment, it keeps record of wrongs. The next statement is wrath, and later it says rage. This is outbursts of uncontrolled, passionate frustration. We see this all around us. We use that term road rage, but we see it in homes as well. We see a desire to verbalize the pain that a person has. And often uh, it it is uh, an example of anger. And in the text, it talks about uh, putting off anger. And we know that there's such a thing as righteous anger, But we also recognize here what he's talking about bluntly is what I would call the tea kettle principle, the stuff that is inside of us when it's allowed to fester that at some point it can explode like a geyser, that it's not suppressible and it ends up causing great pain to others. Clamor, that's not a word we use very often, but it's harsh words, shouting, yelling, Screaming, slander refers to words that hurt another person, particularly to when you attack their character. Malice is a deep ill will towards another person or people. Um, And it's concentrated. It's been described as concentrated hatred. So, So this checklist, these are pretty ugly things. Bitterness, wrath, rage, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Uh, I I thank the Lord that he doesn't just tell us not to do these things, but he tells us that it's possible for us to put them away from us in our life. Uh, I think that's a helpful thought, that we can choose to put away those things that destroy relationships. I think it's important for us to accept the fact that we are people who've had to receive forgiveness from the Lord, and also that the Lord has given us his Holy Spirit, and he's blessed us with opportunities to be able to understand his supernatural power, to be able to experience the kind of forgiveness and give that kind of experience to other people. I celebrate that fact. Several of you have shared stories with me um, about uh, divine appointments that you've had. Some of you really tough encounters that you've needed to have with friends and loved ones. And it felt like there was just a divine appointment that was set up for you to connect with another person. I think the Holy Spirit's in that. I think when the Lord Jesus taught this to Peter, he was explaining to him that friendships and relationships are going to require us to be people who are good at giving forgiveness. I think it's important to note, just a a quick side note, that 
This is not a defense for staying in a a long-term abusive relationship. It's allowing God to be a judge. It is allowing us to recognize that it's a wise word that turns away wrath or to, as we talked about last week as peacemakers, that we live at peace with everyone as long as it is up to us. We allow the Lord to be the one who we turn to for justice. I think that that's important as we turn to the third point this morning, and that is the forgiven are expected to be people who forgive. In Ephesians 4.32, he went on to say, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I think that's how we learn how to forgive one another. I think there's great power in remembering how much you yourself have been forgiven. I think it's helpful for us to remember that God has forgiven us an incredible amount when it comes to the forgiveness of our sins. And he says things to us like, as far as the east is from the west, so our transgressions are before the eyes of the Lord. He has forgiven us and set us free from the sin that has been a part of our life. I think that it's helpful for us to recognize the rest of these words in the text that are helpful, that it talks about kindness to others, being tender-hearted, and then to be someone who forgives as you yourself have been forgiven. I think this is the blessing of being a Christ follower. One of the many things is that we allow ourselves to not have to bear the weight of unforgiveness in our life. Louis B. Samdes put it this way. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. I think that there's a recognition when we forgive the way Christ forgave us that we find ourselves set free. But there's an implied warning here, and this is important for us to note. In the text, if we go back to the story of Jesus' encounter with Peter when he taught him the parable of the unforgiving servant, that it goes on in verse 34 to say this, And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. And then in verse 35, it gives this this warning to those of us who claim Christ as our Savior, that the expectation is that we are people who give forgiveness to other people. So also my heavenly father will do it to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think that it's important for us to recognize, even as pastors, like I like this one commentary on the book of Ephesians says this, Linsky says this, he says, let us put this plainly since even pastors misunderstand it. The moment a man wrongs me, I must, in my heart, forgive him. This is radical forgiveness. This is unexpected. It's the kind of thing that is shocking, even as the story is told. But I believe it's something that's practical and possible. So when he says to do this, I want to challenge you. One of the things that we mentioned last week is that we'll talk about anger for just a second. And I think that Um, anger in some ways is a sign of a person engaging in in a relationship. Not all anger is wrong or not all anger is the thing that we have to get rid of. We know that Jesus practiced righteous anger at times, but I think it's important for us to tangibly consider some ways that we can help one another in relationship. So this is when you get anger, angry, um, I want to encourage you to consider um, some thoughts from Friendship Factor by Alan Loy McGinnis. I told you a couple weeks ago, I love this book, and he shared these principles. He says, first thing, when you get into a conflict, to talk about your feelings, not necessarily all of your friend's faults. Uh, I think it's a really practical principle. It's easy for us to list out 
all of the things that a person has done wrong to us, but the encouragement is to say, how does this make me feel? I think the, the next one is a good one, and it is to stick to one topic. Um, if you've ever sat on a, a jury, um, you recognize that a good lawyer or a good judge will be careful to not allow it to become all of the issues, but they'll try to handle one issue at a time. And I think in conflict or in times of anger or discouragement, that it's important for us to be careful about sticking to one topic at a time. Uh, the third is to allow your friend the space to respond. Next week, we're going to talk about the power of words and listening to one another. And uh, I think we all know that words are um, impactful. And when it talks about this idea of allowing your friend to respond, some of this means giving space to just listen to their perspective. Um, a fourth way to deal with um, anger appropriately in a relationship is to aim for ventilation and resolution, not conquest. I think that's good. Like your goal isn't to win the fight, but it's to be heard and to communicate and to come to resolution. Uh, the fifth one might sound a little weird, but he is a person who's counseled a lot of individuals in crisis, and his statement is to avoid chemicals. And uh, his point is sometimes in conflict, alcohol's, alcohol use and drugs can just amplify a conflict, cause great pain, confuse the situation is his words. And then um, his last practical thought when it comes to anger is to balance criticism with lots of affection. I think that's pretty wise. God's word reminds us that we can only understand forgiveness through the lens of the gospel. And I think it's important for us as we conclude um, that, remember that story that I mentioned at the beginning of the police officer who um, experienced something that was so tragic, and yet he was able to give great forgiveness. His wife, Patty, told, this, told the story of um, when she was a young girl that um, Reverend, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was in New York speaking in, in um, Central Park, and he had um, told this story or made this statement. He said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. And that message impacted her so much as a young girl that later she remembered this when she was married and her husband was going through this crisis and they were going through it. She, she used this statement, forgiving is not just a one-time decision. You've got to live forgiveness every single day. Brothers and sisters, if we understand the truth of the gospel, forgiven people forgive people. And it's important for us to recognize this. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads together with me, and we're going to invite the worship team to come forward. But we're going to ask the Lord to teach us what it means to be people who don't just forgive one time, but 70 times seven, lavish forgiveness that represents the kind of forgiveness that he's offered to us. Lord, we love you so much, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage in Ephesians. Uh, the Apostle Paul reminded us of the fact that forgiveness is only understood through the lens of the gospel. I thank you for Lois's testimony that reminds us of the fact that it's only through um, the, the God of the universe that extends to us the kind of forgiveness that changes lives, that we can understand truly what it means to forgive one another. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here today, some of which are bearing, carrying with them the burden of unforgiveness, that the the weight of that, as that earlier quote had mentioned, is giving space in their life to something that may be causing great harm 
uh, to themselves, giving space to something that really does not have to be a part of their life. I thank you, Lord, that in our church family, we've had stories of individuals who have decided, I'm going to cut this one free. I'm going to set this burden down. I'm going to choose to forgive someone in many ways who doesn't deserve it, that have sinned against me, that have caused great harm in my life. But I'm going to do it not because they deserve it, but because of the fact that God has asked me to because of what he has done for me. I pray for each and every one of us that we would be willing to search our hearts and evaluate our relationships and to ask ourselves the question, is there something that's there that's causing harm or damage to the meaningful relationships that the Lord has provided for me? And I just thank you for Lois's testimony that um, it's not too late for us to do that. I praise you, Lord, for the truth that you've given us today. I pray that you would allow us to not just be hearers of your word, but to be doers of it. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.